welcome to our Twitter spaces. Thank you so much for joining us. So my name is Mokaya. I co-write the transcript once every quarter. Uh, we get to analyze what we learned from the earnings. We try to hold it after the earnings season is over. Mostly the earnings season for Q1 is behind us, except for retail companies which are reporting this week. But most of the companies have reported, especially the big tech, the banks and all. We have really good speakers today. Sam Rowe writes a lot about some of the key takeaways, especially the macro stuff uh, from the earnings calls. And MBI does uh, really deep dives on specific companies. And Alex Morris does a, a lot of deep dives also on specific companies, especially trends in streaming. So I want them to introduce themselves. I'd start with uh, Sam Rowe and MBI and Alex Morris uh, in that order. Sam, welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm Sam Rowe. I write the Ticker newsletter. You can find it on ticker.co. It's also all linked on my Twitter profile. I spent a lot of time writing about how market activity and short-term economic news and data fit into uh, longer-term themes and longer-term trends. I write a lot for longer-term investors who are looking for some historical context and data that'll help them understand what's going on in the news today in, in the context of their long-term investments. So yeah, that's me. Anything else you wanted me to add off the top? Maybe you can tell us, how did you develop your interest in the earnings calls? I used to write for a couple of stock-picking newsletters about 15 years ago, before the financial crisis, if you can believe that was a thing then. I spent my entire full-time job, I guess about a third of the time, actually thumbing through earnings calls to get the details you need to, to fill out DCF models and stuff like that. But I was always you know, really interested in what executives would say on earnings calls because every once in a while you get those sort of interesting anecdotes from the front lines of, of business where they'll tell you what is going on with their customer behavior and consumer behavior that can provide some really unique insights as to what's actually going on in, in the economy. I'm a huge fan of what's going on, especially with earnings calls, because a lot of this stuff is off script. And even though all these execs go through all of that training to not say anything ridiculous, they, they will go off script a little bit and will share things that you normally don't see in, in press releases. Earnings calls are incredibly interesting and insightful. And if you have time, it's, it's always great to be listening to them. Great MBI. Hi, Mokaya and everyone. Thanks for inviting me. So my name is Abdullah Al-Rizwan. People usually call me MBI on Twitter. MBI is the abbreviation of my Twitter name, mostly borrowed ideas. I, I write MBI deep dives. I, I write one deep dive every month. Apart from doing a company-specific deep dive, I try to follow closely the companies I own in my portfolio and also follow the earnings calls from time to time whenever they're happening. That's pretty much what I do. Mokaya kind of asked me before to talk about what I love to follow earnings calls. Well, first of all, many of the companies that I follow are in my portfolio. So just based on pure self-interest, I need to follow these companies. And the other thing is, it's just a better, uh, better way to grasp how things are going in the economy. Earnings calls in, in many ways can be a great way to understand the businesses. Sometimes the management, as Sam was mentioning, is willing to share things that you wouldn't find just by going through the public filings like 10Ks or 10Qs. Sometimes an analyst would ask questions and in response to those questions, management would share some interesting, sometimes unique insights. And also just because of the sheer size of some of these companies, you tend to gain a better understanding of how certain aspects of the economy is faring. I remember back in back during COVID times, there was pretty much a dichotomy between reality and what we are 
kind of seeing in the stock market. The market was a 35% drawdown. Market was kind of going up against our uh, intuition. And at the same time, we are stuck at home. So there was a kind of dichotomy of how we are kind of living our day-to-day life and how the market was reacting. And uh, similarly, uh, even today, we, we are kind of seeing this similar but a dichotomy. Now we are going out. The people are uh, you know, seemingly spending more time uh, outside. They are spending money. They're generally enjoying life much more than probably they did in, our, in the last couple of years. But in the market, we are seeing quite the opposite. The market's going down. So obviously, the market's trying to tell us what may happen maybe a year from now, yeah, two years from now. Alex? Thanks to the transcript for putting this together as always, and I'm excited to be here with Sam and MBI and some good speakers. My name's Alex Morris. I run the TSOH Investment Research Service. Long story short, I worked on the buy side for about a decade, and I've been writing online for about a decade. And in April 2021, I, I left my role to launch a full-time research service where I essentially share all the research that I'm doing on a you know daily basis with subscribers. And then anytime I make any portfolio changes, I disclose those to subscribers before doing so. I use quarterly calls and transcripts really as a way to kind of verify and build confidence in my long-term investment process, which is really focused on partnering with honest and able management teams. I, I think when management is communicating with you directly, whether it's at an investor day or a quarterly call or a shareholder letter, those are opportunities where you get to see someone in action and you can find things that are really encouraging or at times you find red flags that can be checked on and and may be informative in terms of how you react to your investment. So that's really how I use it is trying to frame the commentary in terms of the long-term strategic direction of the company and and the quality of the management team. Great. Are the transcripts? My co-author is Scott. Scott is here now. Uh, Scott, maybe you can introduce yourself. Hey, everybody. Scott Krislov. I am co on the, the transcript. Eric and I have built this together over the course of like 10 years now, it seems like, Eric. We rebranded as the transcript, I think, two or three years ago. We were Avondale Asset Management's earnings call notes before that. Why I read transcripts, I think that the management teams that contribute to the transcripts, obviously, are leading these companies, have some of the best views of what's going on in the economy, where information asymmetry really comes out is in earnings call transcripts. My theory on this always was that everybody has a story to tell, but not everybody's listening. But every one of these management teams has people on the call, but the whole market doesn't necessarily digest all of the insights that they have on those calls. There have been many, many times well-documented throughout the life of the transcript where we read a tidbit of information in one company's earnings calls that actually means something else for a different company. And we're able to highlight that for readers as an actionable investment catalyst. Personally, I manage my own money based on the things that we see in the transcript. So really, whatever the headline is in the transcript from week to week, whatever the uh, coincident indicator of the economy seems to be the right way to position my portfolio over and over again. So this is really core to my personal investment process. All right. Thanks, Scott. Let's dig uh, right into it. So I'll start with Sam. And Sam, maybe you can give us a macro perspective from what you learned from the earnings calls of this Q1. Great. Thanks. I was preparing for this call last night and thumbing through my notes. And I, I think it's really hard to sort of compete with what Target said today in their earnings call and their press release. They really sort of checked off a whole lot of boxes. And of course, because their earnings announcement was today, it's probably the most timely perspective on what's going on both in retail as, as well as 
sort of the macroeconomic situation. I think there are probably like three things that, that came out. I'll start with this first quote. Guests are focused on getting back to many of the habits and behaviors they suspended during the heart of the pandemic, including travel, out-of-home activities, and social gatherings. Importantly, even as the mix of what they're buying continues to evolve, their spending capacity continues to benefit from elevated savings rates, high employment, and healthy wage growth. Those are two gigantic macro themes that are happening right now in the economy. So that first part, what they said about people getting back to travel and out-of-home activities and social gatherings reflects this huge shift that we're seeing in, in consumer spending right now, where, where consumers are shifting from buying goods that they were spending on during the early part of the pandemic since they couldn't go on anywhere. They just shop on Amazon all day long and bought furniture and home gardening equipment or whatever it is. People are going out and doing stuff. And this was echoed earlier this week when United Airlines filed that 8K where they had to revise upward their revenue estimates for the rest of the year. So the consumer is doing stuff. They're probably not buying as much stuff as they used to, but they're certainly doing stuff. So anything that involves services, especially when it comes to travel and vacationing, all, all those areas are doing particularly strong. And Target was willing to, to say that up front. Related to that second part of that quote I just mentioned, they're talking about consumers. Their spending capacity continues to benefit from elevated saving rates, high employment, healthy wage growth. These are the big three things that are driving the consumer's capacity to spend. Excess savings is one that a lot of folks have been talking about, but sometimes gets undercovered. This is all the extra money above trend savings rates that consumers put away since the beginning of the pandemic. This has accumulated to about $2 trillion worth of extra savings that consumers have. And high employment, I think, is also something that's really important to remember. Just in the first four months of this year, U.S. employers have added 2.1 million jobs. These are 2.1 million people who went from not having income to having income. This is very important, especially in the context of, of wage growth conversations. You can't forget the fact that a lot of these wage growth measures don't account for the fact that there's these 2 million people who are now working as opposed to not working. Now, I understand some of these are second jobs or whatever, but the point being that this is a considerable source of incremental income for the consumer. So the consumer is very healthy. And the other thing I would note, and this is why I particularly see value in, in listening to earnings calls, is Target didn't have to say this, right? They could have very easily managed expectations and shifted the tone a little bit. And, and they did mention this a little bit, but they could have really focused on this whole idea that we're starting to see cracks in the consumer. Consumers are getting a little bit more conservative and, and all this stuff. And, and while they may have mentioned that a little bit, the fact that they are continuing to reiterate this point of elevated savings rates and high employment is just as solid a confirmation as it gets that here is yet another business that understands that the consumer is strong. So those are the, the first two points in terms of macro. And then the third point, and Alex just tweeted this before the call, and this is another quote from Target, and this is in regards to costs. And so the quote starts, actual conditions have been much more challenging than expected. For the year, we're now expecting around $1 billion of incremental freight costs even compared to our expectation three months ago. For you guys who have been following the corporate story and the inflation story, inflation has been a concern for at least a year now. The word inflation itself has been repeated over and over, and it's really sort of coming to a head right now. But even with 
all of that lead time in terms of understanding that there was inflation in the pipeline. A company like Target that has all the information in the world when it comes to logistics lowballed their costs by about a billion dollars. That speaks to how unexpected, how intense, and how sort of unprepared a lot of companies were for the amount of inflation that that we're continuing to see. Maybe it's a matter of people sort of not expecting inflation to have persisted for um, this long, but I guess that's um, what we can say about the Fed as well. But I think that Target really sums things up from my perspective today. And just to summarize, consumers are going out and doing stuff far more than they're actually purchasing stuff. Two, consumers are, are, are very healthy. They have a lot of savings. People are still going back to work and they are experiencing wage growth. And then three, inflation has been higher and hotter and more persistent than even some of the most savvy corporations could have expected. So that's sort of, from my perspective, the, the state of the business environment as told through Target's eyes. It's a great introduction. I think there's a couple of things I just add to that. And on the first one, in terms of Sam's comment, good to services. You look at a company like Airbnb, they just reported the strongest quarter in the, in the company's history. Nights and Experience booked across 100 million bookings for the first time. Another example, Disney domestic parks are absolutely slammed. People are spending significant amounts of money. And again, in both of those cases, there's still a fairly significant problem from international travel. It's a meaningful part of both of those businesses, and yet they're still seeing some of the strongest results I've ever seen. So I think it really speaks to that good to services shift that Sam talked about. On the other point about Target and Walmart collectively generate more than half a trillion dollars in retail sales in the U.S. alone. And it's pretty amazing to think, as Sam called out, retailers have been talking about the cost of shipping and freight costs for six months, a year now longer. It's pretty amazing when you hear a company like Target come out and say, the change in the past three months has blindsided us so much that It's a billion dollars of incremental cost. As a reminder, this is a company, they've had a huge tailwind in the last couple of years, but this is a company that in 2019 generated less than $5 billion of EBIT. That's a very significant cost increase. It's about 100 bips on sales. I think the other really interesting comment that they made, and it really echoes what what Walmart said yesterday, is it's always the last lever we pull, but external conditions let us to raise prices across a broad set of items in multiple categories. As you've seen in recent quarters, overall costs have been rising much faster than retail prices, resulting in year-over-year declines in our gross margin rates. So they're taking pricing because they have to, and it's pretty clear from their commentary that for the core, call it CPG, and and, and food products that people need, obviously they're going to keep buying those things, but in some of these other general merchandise categories, whether it's TVs, appliances, outdoor furniture, they're, they're seeing a major headwind there in terms of what they're putting through. And Walmart specifically said, our, while we're happy our inventory's up because we need to be in stock, it's, it was a 32% year-over-year increase. That's higher than we wanted. And it's, it's going to take us a couple quarters to work through all this. It's an interesting time, and the consumer certainly seems strong when you look at certain businesses. But a data point like that, to me, kind of suggests maybe that's starting to crack a little bit, especially as costs continue to skyrocket, as we all see when we go to the grocery store. Just to add to both Alex and Sam's point, when I think about all the transcripts that I've read and all the earnings that I followed over the last quarter, one thing that kind of you know became quite clear to me that last two years has been just insanely difficult operating environment for these businesses. And I don't think we as investors perhaps appreciated how, how insanely difficult last couple of years has been. Just quickly refreshing our memory, we had COVID. And if, if you think about a key e-commerce uh, operator like Amazon, demand overshot, 
And, and Amazon, in the last earnings call, they mentioned we quickly transitioned from being understaffed to being overstaffed, resulting in lower productivity. And so you started from COVID, demand shock, and then you had Omicron, China COVID stuff, Ukraine war. So that led to supply side disruption. And you had persistent high inflation, like 8%. That's like 40 year high in US history. You also had like work from home and in the rising cost for tech talent. So it's been just incredibly difficult to forecast demand, resolve supply chain issues, and also manage costs. It's like the perfect storm. As Alex mentioned, it's been a very difficult environment, even for some of the best operators out there. And one of the concerns that I personally had as Amazon shareholder, whether this is an Amazon specific thing or whether they have kind of you know, bungled it up in terms of how to respond to some of these challenges. And, and you know, just listening to Walmart or targets calls, it's in, in abundantly clear that it's not an Amazon specific thing. It's just incredibly difficult uh, operating environment for these businesses. And it may take a while uh, to transition into a more normalized environment, but this feels like more of a macro thing rather than an idiosyncratic company specific thing. Usually in an environment like this, the difference between good operators and, and average or below average operators becomes more and more clear the longer it goes on. Difference between a competitively advantaged businesses versus less competitively advantaged or commoditized businesses will be will be more and more apparent. That's one of my biggest takeaways. Just this, you know, realization how incredibly difficult this has been for the operators. I, I know investors uh, have lost money and investors have their own issues and problems and challenges, but uh, I think we should probably take a moment and understand how uh, incredibly challenging at uh, the last two years has been for the management and operators who are running these businesses. Scott, maybe you could give us a little bit of historical context of some of the happenings in the market. Sure. Thanks for the plug, Eric. For those who don't know, I read every Time magazine in history from 1923 to 2000. So Eric and I on our podcast weekly cover a lot of not only the transcript, but also historical trends from different cycles. And in the quarterly letter that we wrote, this week and distributed to readers. We talked about a little bit at the end, some of the historical analogs to this period. And we've covered a lot of management teams talking about how no one's ever really operated in an environment like this because we've had relatively low inflation for the last 40 years. If you were 20, 40 years ago, you're 60 now, you're basically towards the end of your career. But there certainly have been massive inflationary periods in US history. And one that always felt super analogous to me in this case is the post-World War II period. Because in the 1930s, you had deflation. The deflationary period was ended really by a global event in World War II, in which in that global event, you had the federal government investing heavily into the economy to address the, the event. And in that case, putting money directly into consumers' pockets via employment, because we had a heavily labor manufacturing economy at the time. So you had that. And then you also had the supply chain shocks that you have today. You've had massive disruptions. We didn't actually produce any automobiles for several years during the war. And so when you came back out of the war, you had a retransition phase where you were bringing the economy back into a consumer mode. You had supply chain disruptions. And you also had consumers with just a lot of money in their pockets. And the way that they dealt with inflation at that time was with price controls. So you had price controls that were kind of being lifted and you had uh, large double digit inflation. And actually during that period, you had this transitory in the fact that it was like a few years worth of inflation and then ended up going away. The reason it went away was uh, the Federal Reserve ultimately came in and started raising interest rates there. And so that was kind of the end of that. You had a big inflationary period and that was where you saw the value of the dollar get cut in half just through that. 
And then you have the other big inflationary period of the 20th century, which is kind of 1966 through 1981, 82. And that was driven just by monetary push inflation, the Federal Reserve and government spending being much higher than it should have been. And you had just this chronic inflationary period in which you would have the economy recover from recession with easy monetary policy. And then you would have the Fed come in and tighten monetary policy again. And then you would go back into recession. You just had a ratcheting up of interest rates. The Fed always had had a bias towards being looser than the economy probably needed until Volcker came in. And that's, again, where we find ourselves today. So the Federal Reserve talked about this transitory inflation throughout 2021 and never really addressed the thing that we saw management teams talking about consistently throughout the year, which was this is actually the largest inflation that we've ever seen. There's nothing transitory about this, and policymakers should be addressing this. But the Federal Reserve decided not to address it, and consistently just has a bias towards dovishness, it seems, throughout the last 15-year period. We may be entering an inflationary cycle, higher costs of capital, and that's what's on a macro basis we're seeing markets adjust to today. Despite the, the challenges in terms of inflation and all, is that the consumer is, of course, a bit resilient. Most of the earnings calls are talking about how could the consumer is doing well, how he's strong, and even the Federal Reserve chair yesterday was also saying the same thing. But also something else that we noticed is, was it the Microsoft CEO also saying that IT budgets are not being cut and that some of the companies are actually benefiting in these kind of times or companies are in the tech space. Look, I know MBI, you follow a lot of the big tech companies and also Alex. So maybe you could give us a report of perspective on some of the key things that uh, you had in the earnings calls uh, of some of these big tech companies. Oh, we can start with that, Alex. Yeah, I don't follow a, a ton of these companies. I follow the really big ones fairly closely. And there was a lot of consternation about what the results would look like. And I, I know, especially well for Microsoft, just I've followed it for such a long time. And at the end of the day, I think it's pretty fair to say that they just crushed it. It was another very impressive a quarter across the board. And as you noted, Satya Della said, companies don't really look to to this as an area to cut because it's what drives efficiency and is so important to productivity and strategic vision and, and everything about running the business. So it's a place that you might actually look to spend in tough times as opposed to cutting because it's the way that you become more efficient. In terms of the actual results, the Microsoft Cloud now at just shy of $100 billion in run rate revenue. It's still growing mid-30s and it's just become a massive business. It's larger than the company's entire revenues were five, six years ago. The AWS was widely accepted as the, the leading player in this space, call it 15 years ago now. And it's just really amazing how this has just really flipped things in the tech world and in the, the business world broadly. But I th think the results there have been really strong. These companies have a lot of considerations on things like compensation. And when the stock market starts to do really poorly, especially you know for some of the smaller players in the tech land, I'm, I'm sure it's very difficult for them to retain employees who see a fairly significant percentage of their comp and stock. And I might wake up one day and go, hey, my comp over the last four years, I thought it was 400K a year and now it's 180K a year or whatever the swings can be. So you're even seeing companies like Microsoft have to come out and be pretty public about ensuring that they're continuing to improve employee relations through higher comps. So I think they'll see this as well, but they certainly seem to be well positioned relative to, to some of the smaller and younger companies that are in a much less secure place in terms of the strength of their balance sheet, but also just in terms of the underlying strength of the business. Yeah, Alex made some uh, pretty strong points here. I, I, I did not get a chance to go through Microsoft's earnings or Apple's earnings, but I kind of did go through Amazon, Meta, or Facebook, and, and Google's earnings calls. Broadly speaking, I think 
earnings this last quarter was generally okay to find. Markets at this point are much more concerned about maybe two, three quarters from now, then what's going to happen like this and next quarter. Markets is always an expectations game and it's always trying to understand or incorporate the future. There wasn't a lot of concerning materials that I have heard or read in the earnings calls. Like Amazon mentioned, Prime members have meaningfully increased their spend since the start of the pandemic, and, and they're consistently renewing at high renewal rates. But they did also mention that they're not immune from inflation pressures on the cost side, which is generally in a known and acknowledged, especially with you know a rising you know, fuel costs, transportation costs, and all that. The retail side of the business is uh, much more exposed to the inflationary situation. But their first-party business certainly much more exposed than their services business, which is a third-party business or or even AWS, AWS, uh, GCP, or, or Microsoft Azure. These are oligopolies and reasonably competitively advanced multi-businesses. I know most people are talking about the inflation and, and how exposed they are, the retail side of the business. But what really stood out to me from Amazon's earnings is basically AWS's EBIT margin. They posted 35% gap EBIT margin. I, I remember when I started looking at Amazon, I think sometime in 2019, and and the biggest concern at that time around AWS was that their margins are too high. It used to be probably 30% in 2018 or somewhere around that. And in a, for a quarter or two, it came down to like 26, 27%. And then the talk of the town was that these margins are too high. It's a utility commodity business. Microsoft Azure is coming. GCP is coming. Margins are going to go down. And since then, in the last two, three years, nothing of that sort has happened. All three companies have continued to grow at a rapid pace. GCP is growing at uh, 45% CAGR rate over last two, three year uh, period. AWS is growing at a pretty crazy rate. I don't think in a history of capitalism, any company with this sort of uh, a top line is growing at a speed that AWS is growing. They are back growing at 68% year over year, which is just insane when you think about it. So the fact that after all these concerns, AWS has accelerated its growth. And at the same time, they are posting higher and higher margin. Uh, to me, that's going to be perhaps the bigger story three, four years down the line. Inflation is consuming all of our attention today, and that's no doubt, and that's a relevant topic, and, and that can derail things. And the operating environment can be very uh, challenging for the retail side. But the more I look forward to, I think one of the biggest takeaways from my, at least going through Amazon call was basically how strong AWS has been. And, and it's not like they are growing at the expense of the other two. Everyone is growing, and I think the cloud has been a strong secular force that's going to be tested if we face a recession. And one of the uncomfortable things about big tech is some of these companies weren't really there at this size and scale during global financial crisis. Like everyone talks about how a digital ad advertising like Google and Facebook or Meta will face uh, severe headwinds if there is a recession because advertising tends to be cyclical, but we, we just don't quite be sure like to what extent and whether they will be affected. There are some points and counterpoints about whether they, they'll be affected at all, or even if they do, maybe it's not going to be as devastating for them as it used to be for, let's say, in a linear world or in a physical world. Lots of unknowns, and the market seems to be at this point, are trying to price all the unknowns. But the fact of the matter is, in, in many cases, we don't have quite clear-cut answers. So we don't know how affected cloud will be. Intuition says that it's actually much more cost comp to move from on-prem to cloud. And there is a reasonable case to make that secular force will probably will be accelerating during a 
uh, recessionary period. But that remains to be seen. And at the same time, you know, d- digital advertising, there's a point that even if we face recession next year, it's possible that we may see a strong positive nominal growth. Real GDP may see some headwinds and may decline uh, a year from now. But if inflation persists, this will be a positive nominal uh, growth environment. And in that case, it's, it's possible that since these are like our auction-based system, the revenue uh, top line uh, may not be affected much for Google and Facebook. The other thing from Facebook's call, the operating environment has changed a lot. In a very short period of time, the companies are probably reassessing a lot of the cost to make sure that they are spending in a way that has uh, a greater ROIC and greater profitability going forward. And it's going to be much more under the scanner as we kind of navigate through this challenging environment. Facebook is freezing their new hires. They're also cutting down in some of their expenses in Facebook Reality Labs. One of the things that I personally am trying to understand and look forward to figuring out more as we kind of go through the rest of the year, to what extent some of these big tech companies have discretionary expenses. Amazon talked about overbuilding, Facebook's costs have risen in a crazy rate, their capex has gone up at a crazy rate. Google's been hiring a lot and they have said that they'll continue to hire at an accelerated rate going forward, although I doubt they'll be able to follow through that promise. If they have a lot of discretionary expenses in a difficult operating environment, their earnings may not go down, even if uh, their growth slow down materially, even if their gross margins get somewhat pressured for some of them. But overall, maybe uh, operating margins or, or net margins or net profitability may not go down as materially as perhaps market is pricing at the point. But then again, I just also want to disclose that Google, Facebook, and Amazon are three, uh, three of my largest you know, holdings. So I may have my own biases there as well. So I look forward to kind of figuring it out as we move through the rest of the year. Hey, Eric, I just wanted to add something real quick to your initial question about CapEx and IT tech investment. And just real quick, zooming out a little bit, a couple of weeks ago, we got the latest monthly report on durable goods orders from the census. This is surveying every business in America. And one of the subcomponents of this survey is technically it's called non-defense capital goods orders, excluding aircraft. And the shorthand for that is core CapEx. And a little bit more informally, this is CapEx business investment. As of March, which is the most recent reading, that number for, for those for core CapEx orders, these are business investment orders by businesses, hit a record high of 80.8 billion. And there's also the outstanding backlog for this equipment. So this stuff hasn't been shipped yet, has also reached new record highs that are way above pre-pandemic levels. So just sort of like a general matter when it comes to CapEx spending, businesses are still ordering equipment like crazy and this stuff hasn't even shipped yet. And so as far as what the outlook looks like for the businesses that do provide capital equipment, whether it's computer machinery or water pumps or whatever it might be, the outstanding demand and the excess demand for a lot of this stuff is still really high. It's one of these huge tailwinds when it comes to the the manufacturing industry, this whole matter of businesses still trying to get CapEx equipment under their roof so that they can conduct business. I just want to add one thing real quick to what MBI said, because I think it's a really interesting, at least lesson for me or something that I'm seeing now, especially as we come out of this quarter. And probably the best place to see this is in in a video on demand 
space. You know, most, most notably, Netflix came out and had a very difficult quarter, big change in long-term expectations. And I think that was met with, on the subsequent calls from every other major media company, basically some assurances that, hey, we're focused on spending efficiently, which obviously they always should be. But a company like Disney came out and said, hey, we're not going to spend $33 billion this year. It's going to be 32 Really small changes, but just kind of signaling where their attention and focus goes. And I think you can just focus on the industry that a company operates within, kind of direct competitors, and think about how, as those things flow through the whole industry, what impact that has as we see a different part of the cycle. But even to MBI's point on a company like Amazon, you think about it, the big tech companies have their hands in a lot of different places where they're direct competitors, somewhat supplemental to the other operators in the business, whatever it may be. You can imagine that, Someone like Jassy coming in as CEO and very new in the job, kind of reassessing some of the priorities and thinking about whether it's retail stores, whether it's their interest in the video business, whether it's their interest in podcasting. There's a couple of different layers where I think you can see how a period like this may have a pretty big impact on how companies think about where they want to focus their resources and their time and attention. Well, I wanted to pivot a little bit to maybe the intersection of tech and consumer, something that has been uh, a big talk of town, I think the past uh, two or three months is the issue of streaming services and how they're doing. Uh, and one of the quotes we picked this quarter was about YouTube and uh, the scale at which YouTube is operating, which is pretty impressive. And the way they're positioning themselves as competitors to streaming services. I wanted to find out uh, what your hot techs are on this area of streaming and what uh, your key takeaways, especially as uh, Disney and uh, Netflix uh, pivot into providing ad-supported tiers. So maybe we could start with Scott uh, on this perspective because you've also been following this on the transcript for a while. Yeah, we've been talking about this for several months, Mokaya, and we have a podcast from a month or two before Netflix reported earnings talking about how it could be down 25% on earnings day. And obviously that ended up being the case. I think that what we're seeing is saturation for uh, subscription services and people have been subscribing. There hasn't been quite that much competition for a long time. And we saw competition has been intensifying for the last several years, like the Disney Pluses, the Paramount Pluses, the Peacocks coming into the market, Hulu. But you're just starting to see them sort of mature into having enough distribution and distribution channels where there's fragmentation now in the streaming market. And it's actually hard to figure out where you're going to watch anything. And the last few months, even or nights, just as a consumer, I've been flipping around trying to find channels on my Apple TV or things to watch. And it feels like we're back to the old linear TV joke of, well, I have a hundred channels and nothing to watch. Now it feels like the entire world of content is at my fingertips and I can't figure out anything to watch. I end up just watching old movies and shows that I've already watched before. So I think that speaks to me to, again, the, the old notion of content is king. It speaks to how important brand is on the internet, brand of specific shows, brand of people and historical artifacts, things that really matter and have the cultural gravity to survive the long term. These are all things that have become more and more important with the internet as a distribution mechanism. And streaming is just seeing that at the tip of the iceberg. Alex, you write a lot about this. Uh, what have you noticed in the Disney versus Netflix world? Well, there's a couple of layers to that. <laughs> I think uh, one of the biggest ones, and it's not really a, a story from this quarter, but it's the success that Disney has had with their D2C strategy out of the gates and relatively early. It's only been not even three years since Disney Plus launched, and it's just shy of 140 million paid subs globally. And 
that has a significantly lower ARPU on average than something like Netflix, but you can see how their strategy is starting to unfold. A big question will be over long term, what type of spend you need to commit in order to support the business and what do the economics eventually look like? I think the market and investors rightly looked at a company like Netflix that very clearly laid out a, a margin progression over the course of a period of, I think, five or six years, and, and they lived up to, to what they told the market that they could achieve. Now we've had a very rapid change in terms of what people are looking for over the next handful of years. And to Scott's point, if it's not meeting a need for the consumers and the companies, I do think that there's going to be some change in that one way or the other. A good example is something like Avod, and a company saying they're not going to do something it's very different to frame it relative to what we kind of all came to experience, at least in the U.S., in terms of an ad-supported TV product, which was linear. I think Kantar Data had it at 20 minutes an hour of ads. When you're comparing it to something like Disney Plus coming out and committing to a four-minute ad load per hour, it, you're just talking completely different worlds. I think as technology evolves, there has to be some presumption that the ARPU on a product like that will be justified by the CPMs or the economics of that advertising portion of the business. I, I certainly think you'll see companies try different approaches. And as a management team, I think what you probably need to do is not be so dead set in one route versus the other, be open-minded. And when the world starts to change, you need to try to react as effectively as possible. Speaking of reactions in markets, uh, I think this is a quarter and valuations have come down significantly. So I'm wondering, how are you positioning yourselves, especially in the market with regards to some of the valuations that have come down and some of the companies that actually have significant challenges? I think it was Facebook that was talking about employee retention issues, given that the valuations have come down and that some of the employees are a little worried about some of the stock-based compensation that they have. So any takeaways in that regard, but generally also on the state of the market currently, thinking more not just for the short term, but also like positioning yourself for the long term. And maybe you can start with MBI. In every earnings call, there are some positive, some negative, some you know neutral stuff that management talks about. Depending on the macro and market sentiment, investors seem to focus on just one of those three aspects predominantly. In 2021, it used to be mostly just the positive stuff. People tend to kind of brush through the negative or neutral stuff. But I feel like we have gone to the opposite extreme these days. As I mentioned, for example, uh, in Amazon's earnings calls, they talked about how they're not immune from inflation, how the cost side and the retail side of the business and the fact that they have probably overbuilt. Those are some of the negatives that they talked about and, and investors need to account uh, for those things. But I you know, also uh, think investors sort of overlooked the fact that AWS has been posting 35% gap EBIT margin. If two years from now, if AWS... Uh, consistently puts 35% gap EBIT margin, I think that's going to be the much bigger talking point than whatever we are discussing, the inflation and stuff or, or overbuilding and the CapEx investments in the retail side. We'll probably be discussing for maybe a quarter or two or maybe the rest of this year, but I don't think that's going to be a bigger story. Like if we are, we are having another discussion in 2025 or 2026. Also, even in retail side, when I was going through Shopify's earnings calls, I also felt investors ignored some of the positive elements. Obviously, people are much more focused on Prime, how Amazon is attacking their platform business and potentially their merchant solutions revenue. Shopify is pretty big on Shopify payments. And if if Buy With Prime starts eating into those side of the business, that's pretty bad news for Shopify. But I also felt the fact that uh, uh, Shopify's GMP grew faster than Amazon was, was a kind of a big thing, at least to me. Now, that wasn't the case ever. Shopify's GMP increased divided by 
Amazon's uh, GMV increase. It used to be like 25% in 2020 and 50% in 2021. Now Shopify's GMV increase in first quarter was actually higher than Amazon's GMV increase. We, we all talked about how you know, Shopify is going to suffer because of Apple's iOS changes and all that. And despite all these headwinds, uh, Shopify's GMV was a bit of a surprise, especially in the context of Amazon's GMV, right? They did not beat an, an analyst expectation and our consensus expectation, but we set the context that, you know, what was Amazon's GMV, what was Shopify's GMV. Shopify came out much better than uh, probably many people give them credit for. We don't know why with Prime is going to be a big hit. That's not going to be a good news uh, for Shopify, but that remains to be seen. We don't know yet you know, how they are going to respond. Or, and frankly speaking, there's not much details either from Shopify or from Amazon how buy with Prime is going to play out. So I, I guess there are obviously positives and negatives in almost all earnings calls. For, for example, on Facebook's calls, uh, there was the fact that they focused and they reiterated that they want to grow earnings even after funding the Reality Labs ambition. That was probably a reassuring thing for uh, shareholders. They're just not going to burn money in order to chase Metaverse ambitions. Mark Zuckerberg clearly understands the importance of growing operating income and, and the fact that they have kind of you know held back their hiring ambitions and they also cut down their expense guidance. And my guess is the expense guidance is going to be cut throughout this year. I, I, I suspect uh, so analysts will be surprised how much they will pull back uh, even for next year's. So I was just checking Meta's operating expenses consensus estimates like 102 billion. I wouldn't be surprised if it's like 92 billion uh, next year. So there can be a $10 billion divergence between what analysts are expecting and what Facebook may actually declare in Q3 this year. So those are kind of the things that I'm thinking about. And I feel these are real concerns. I, I'm not saying investors are not right to think about this stuff, but many of the short-term concerns that I see, I, I just feel like we're not going to talk about it maybe two, three years on the line. All right. We're almost to coming to the end. Maybe any quick thoughts and anything that you're watching going into Q2 and maybe something that you may not have covered this far. Just uh, two real quick things, especially in the wake of Walmart and, and Target disappointing on the bottom line because of profit margin concerns. I think that's going to be the hot thing for Q2 earnings announcements is the degree to which profit margins hold up or how much they contract. I think I sent you a, a chart in, in the notes that, that we have, but analysts continue to expect profit margins to be at record levels for 2022. So if Walmart and Target is any sort of indicator of what's to come in terms of, of the direction of margins, then it, it could be trouble for earnings, broadly speaking. And getting back to what you were talking about with what's going on in the stock market and, and valuations, valuations have come down, obviously, with stock prices coming down but forward earnings expectations continue to hold up really well. Of course, those could certainly come down if, if we do find out that margins are contracting and all this stuff. But even if earnings hold up and margins hold up, it could be a, a pretty difficult time in the stock market for a little while because if you've been following, the Federal Reserve has very explicitly said it's actively tightening financial conditions and its effort to get inflation to cool down. And, and stocks are a huge part of how most folks calculate financial conditions. So a stock market rally isn't exactly the kind of thing that the Fed is looking for near term. Again, they've signaled that they'll get more hawkish if financial conditions stay loose. It looks like the stock market probably has a cap um, on it for a little while until we actually start to see inflation and inflation expectations come down materially. It should be a bumpy ride, but I'm looking forward to when we do this call again in three months. The thing I'm probably watching most closely is is 
for companies and management teams that are, as always, looking to strengthen their long-term competitive position and to find paths to really improve their business. And on the short term, that includes being cognizant of, of the risks that arise as conditions change and appropriately reacting to those developments. But but something about, I believe more and more that a truly great CEO, a truly great management team. It's about strategic vision and the ability to execute against that vision. But it's also things like understanding when there's opportunities to do things inorganically and ways to really strengthen your business when dislocation occurs. And I, I think that certainly fits with what's happening more broadly. And in some of the sectors and some of the companies that I follow pretty closely, it's probably been even more painful than kind of the, the general pain that's been felt. So it's, it's monitoring the companies in those industries and seeing the reactions of the different competitors. And if someone makes a move and does something that seems really smart, being prepared to act. The only other layer on top of that that I'd note, and obviously this is an investment advice, but it's also ensuring that when dislocation occurs that you don't let, at least for me, the attractiveness of any given single investment take precedence over having a thoughtfully diversified portfolio and having a portfolio that you are really comfortable with for the long term. Someone like myself who's, who's fairly concentrated, that might still mean a smaller number of positions, but it's thinking about in a way where you're not really introducing too much risk or being exposed to any single trend. So as always balancing, you know, that aggressiveness and that need to be conservative. Before MBI and Scott give the closing thoughts, I wanted to uh, give some time to the sponsor for today's transcript call, Stratosphere. Are you able to speak? Hey, McCoy. Yeah, I just hopped off a little podcast recording. I was catching the end of this. This is awesome stuff. Thanks for letting us uh, have the opportunity to sponsor today's uh, transcript. It's really cool. I like tuning in at the end here. I know Alex and uh, MBI. I don't know Scott and Sam, but we'll have to connect over the next coming weeks. Stratosphere is a data platform where you can search any North American listing, find all the financial data you'd look for, data visualizations. You can set your watch list tons tons more and it's available for free at stratosphereinvesting.com if you want to give it a try we will be happy to have you there thank you mbi do you have some closing thoughts and then scott can close for us yeah i know one of the quotes that kind of stood out to me during this running season it's a quote by isc's ceo joe levin as he said market reaction is driven by an appropriate resetting in valuation frameworks rather than an exogenous black swan event and this time, there's no shot in the arm, literally or figuratively, on the horizon to snap things back. I think he's got that right. I think it's going to be a draining experience for uh, both the operators, uh, the management team, and investors as well. Uh, I don't think it's going to be a rapid snapback, just uh, the one we experienced during COVID time. It's going to be probably much more draining experience for everyone involved. To Alex's point, I think it goes back to the management teams and how good they are going to be, how well they are going to navigate uh, this challenging period over the course of this year and probably next a couple of years as well. I, I think once these things kind of back to normalize, we will we, we'll begin to appreciate the difference between the good the average and the below average and operators and management teams. And the next one or two quarters will be a lot of interesting things to look forward to. For example, just off the top of my head, I know in the next quarter, I'll be keen to kind of uh, understand whether Meta guides for revenue acceleration in Q3. They talked about high tough comps in Q1 and Q2, but there's a general expectation that the revenue may accelerate once they lap the HT impact and the last year's COVID-related impact. So that's something I kind of look forward to. The other question I have is whether Google will be 
able to keep their hiring phase. They mentioned they will keep the pace of hiring for, for this year. It was interesting to see whether their tone kind of changes in the next earnings calls and AWS. There's this kind of meme or joke that's going around that basically at this price, you get retail for free. So I was kind of doing this exercise like, what we need to forecast for AWS to get the retail side of the business for free. And we just need to maintain the revenue, like a dollar growth that AWS has seen in last one year for throughout this decade. So I think roughly $20 billion. If AWS keeps $20 billion revenue growth for, for the rest of this decade, there is a strong case to be made that you, you probably get there retail for the business for free. I would be very keen to see whether that dollar revenue growth for AWS, uh, the top line growth maintains the pace. And now at the same time, whether that gap EBIT margin that I talked about 35%, whether that's a one-off thing for idiosyncratic reasons, there's probably some exchange rate effects margins. So it would be interesting to see whether that sustains at a, a 34, 35% level, or it comes back to high 20s or low 30s. Those are kind of the things that I'd be looking at. And also, I think in the SBC, stock-based compensation has all of a sudden become a top, you know, uh, important topic for uh, all these tech companies. Uh, and obviously, some of these big tech companies generate a lot of cash, a lot of free cash flow. So, And probably all of them are going to buy back stock, especially given how stock prices are going down this few, last few weeks. So it's going to be interesting to see to what extent they are issuing stocks and to what extent they are buying back stocks, right? Whether they are issuing more stocks to kind of increase retention or to maintain retention or, or, or whether they're just being aggressively buying back stocks, especially that's probably more relevant for Google and uh, Facebook and less relevant for Amazon. All super interesting. I, I want to jump in real quick just to close up because I have to run to something else, but wanted to say thank you to everybody who participated today and joined us. Sam, thank you as always. Alex and MBI for the first time joining us. Thank you very much. Closing thoughts. Two weeks ago, we titled our newsletter, The End of an Era? Question mark. And I think what, the reason we titled that was because we had seen a lot of quotes in the same week of people questioning whether we've moved finally from an era of easy money and deflation into an era of inflation. And I think it still is definitely a question mark. Nobody can predict the future, but certainly people are thinking about that today. And that is what's driving financial markets and driving our investment environment. And I think the biggest thing to me that that signifies is throughout the deflationary period, we talked about the Greenspan put that started in the 90s and certainly has happened since the financial crisis. Anytime you started to get a hint of deflation or potential recession, the Fed would come to the rescue. And I think the difference, again, going back to that 1960s period and the period potentially today is that put kind of turns into a call where if you have inflation starting to pick back up, the Fed puts a clamp back down on the economy until it goes away. And if that's the case, we could be in for a period where you have longer term lid on securities markets, capital markets valuations and a trend lower towards what may be more normalized cost of capital. We have, we have existed in an abnormal world for a long time here, and that could cause some dislocations, and we will be tracking that through earnings calls. So thanks again to everybody. Eric, do you have any closing thoughts? My closing thought would be, there's a quote yesterday from Fed. I would say there would be some pain involved in restoring price stability. My hunch is that we are in for a, a bit of a painful period for the few months ahead. I don't know how long that would last, but I think be prepared as you uh, position yourself and your portfolio for that. That would be my closing thoughts. For, for our speakers, if you want to see where to find them, just posted a tweet showing where various write-ups happen so you can... Uh, follow them there. You can find us at uh, the transcript of substack.com and you can always uh, sign up and we have a podcast every week, uh, every 
release it every Tuesday and every Monday we send out the newsletter so you can catch up with us there. So thank you so much for joining us today. We'll do this every quarter. The next one will be three months from now. Thank you so much and have a lovely evening, all of